Well, good morning. It is a genuine privilege to be with you today, um, an honor to be able to come around God's Word with you. And so I just thank you for letting me be here. We're going to continue in this series through James. We're going to open James chapter 5 today. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. And what you're going to find is through these first 12 verses, there's this theme that's implied. It's an interwoven theme that James is carrying over from the first four chapters But he's going to make it his final shot across the bow. It's a prophetic proclamation that we all need to listen to and we have to change. So in a moment, I'm going to share with you a bit about myself. But uh, and, And just I want you to know how important this is to me, how impassioned by this theme I actually am. In fact, I've made it our title today. The title is, What or Who Defines Us? Before I share about myself, I want to know a little bit about you. How many of you have a computer? All right. How many of you have a cell phone? Hands up. How many of you have an iPhone? All right. Droids rise up. Okay, great. The, the Bible says in Psalm 24, 1, that the world and everything in it belongs to God. I lost count. How many of you have a computer? How many of you have a cell phone? Droids? Great. So the, I'm going to say this again. I'm going to say it a little slower this time. Psalm 24, 1 says the world and everything in it belongs to God. How many of you have a computer? Keep going. Uh, iPhones. All right. You're starting to get my point. Here's the thing. We have a tendency to believe that the things that we accumulate define who we are. We have a tendency to forget that what has been given to us has been entrusted to us. And today, we want to unpack what James is saying, and he is saying that if we continue to define ourselves by the temporal ways or the temporal wealth of this world, we're going to miss out on the kingdom and a life abundant. We're going to miss it. And so, this morning, I want to share with you just how much this means to me as a person. You see, most of my life, I was defined, and the better part of my life, I defined myself by how I played a game, namely baseball. I had the opportunity to go on and play in college, and by the time I was a sophomore, I had the opportunity to win a national title for our division, smaller division, but a championship nonetheless. And you might assume that someone who was able to accomplish that must have had a really stable home environment and was afforded every opportunity by which he could succeed, and he'd only be half right. See, I didn't have that stable home that you might assume I did. My father was the hometown hero held every record for every sport he ever played in our community and was revered. My mom was the woman that that guy marries. She had already aspired in academia and had become teacher of the year multiple times. And so there was this this perceived reality of who we were. It was perceived that we were this beaver-cleaver-esque existence, that we were this um, prototypical family of which I was the oldest of three. The only problem with that perception is just that. It was solely perceived. No one understood the hell that I was living at home. My father was intensely bipolar, severely physically and emotionally abusive. I heard later in life uh, that uh, metaphor, blood on the walls. See, that was my literal existence. I had been hit and nearly killed multiple times by the time I was nine. I had witnessed him almost kill my mother and my brother multiple times by the time I was nine. The last attack that finally severed the relationship and we had to get out of there just to survive was he, he took my younger brother at six years old. He held his hair by the back of the head and he literally drove his forehead for two flights into oak stairs, leaving him for brain dead. 
So by 10, he was out of my life. We moved to Florida about five states away, and um, soon after, within a year, my mother started dating. And by 12, she had married a man, another super athlete, but a man that she fell in love with and decided they were going to get married. He wasn't sure how he felt about the whole idea of an Insta family, though. So we were asked to go live with our grandparents for a few weeks just so he'd get used to the idea. I then graduated from high school from my grandparents. He never got used to it. So there I was at 12 years old. I'd been beaten and nearly killed by my father. I'd been given up by my mother. I literally would look over my shoulder all the time to make sure he hadn't found me. And I was constantly looking outward hoping she'd come back to embrace me. My broken circumstances were what defined me. I literally believed that I was unlovable, that there was only abandon and rejection for me. And if I was ever going to esteem or aspire to be anything in life, it was going to be how I performed on the baseball field. It was going to be how perfect I could be on any field that I stepped onto or in any classroom that I entered. And I did. I aspired pretty well. By the time I was 16, I was playing um, for a state-ranked team in South Florida. And we were winning a lot. I was the starting shortstop. But seven games into that season, I blew up my shoulder. And I got hurt and had to sit down. If you know anything about baseball, you know that the middle infield is key to your team's success. You have to have chemistry there. The guy who came in to play behind me, my backup, was far better than I ever was. In fact, he became the best player on my team, and I never got starting shortstop back. But the middle infield has to work out together. And so one day, between our junior and senior year, I was sitting there with Jason, our starting shortstop, the stud, and I asked him a couple questions. I said, man, we win games, and we win a lot, and every time we win, we throw parties. You never come. And every time I see you on Wednesdays, as I'm headed to practice, you're headed out. You never come to practice on Wednesdays, yet you still get to play on Fridays. That's a team rule that you break every week. How is that possible? He said, well... He said, I know, Justin, that you guys go to those parties and you break the law, and I love you. I'm going to want to do what you guys do. But you see, my father is my best friend. He's going to ask me when I come home from that party if I lied to him. And here's the thing, Justin, I can't lie to him. He's my best friend. Now, you may think that it sounds impressive that a 16-year-old would speak of his father and say he's his best friend and he cannot lie to him. How many fathers here would love for your son to say that about you? Amen. But he said it to me. You see, my sole existence was a hatred for my father. I didn't want to be him. Everything about me was to not be my father. But because I also had a perceived reality, I had some things held up right now. Nobody in my, in my world knew why I lived with my grandparents or how I lived with my grandparents. I was embarrassed by it. So I had this perceived reality up that I was the star athlete, a star student, and no one knew how deeply I was hurting. So I played it off. And I, I changed direction really quick. And I just said, hey, okay, so what about the practice thing? He said, well, when I was recruited, I was recruited as your backup. There was no field time for me on Friday night anyways. So I told our coach that God is more important to me. My church meets on Wednesdays. I go with him. That also might be impressive to you to hear from a 16-year-old. 
but he said it to me. He said, I tell you what, Justin, if you want, I'll get you out of practice next Wednesday if you'll just go to church with me. I said, wait, and I'll still get a dress on Friday? He goes, yeah, I'll work it out with coach. I said, hold on. We're in South Florida. I'm standing at second base. It's 4,000 degrees here. It's 400% humidity. There's only one thing hotter in the world, and that's the surface of the sun itself. All I need to do is go sit in an air-conditioned room and listen to someone speak for an hour? He said, yeah. I was like, deal. He kept his end of the bargain. I kept mine. I went with him that next week. And I walked in, and there was about 1,000 people in that room, and none of them knew my story. But I sat down, and it was a little weird for me because they had an evangelist there, someone who was a, a guest speaker. And that guy was really excited. He was turning red in the face, just throwing the pulpit over, spitting on people, pointing, jumping. And I just thought, man, if I wanted to get yelled at, I would have just gone to practice. But then he said something that after 20 years of ministry, I've I've now become uh, aware of. I've become familiar with. I've had people come to me, all my ministry, and say, hey, the Lord spoke directly to me through you today. I can't, I couldn't make this up if I tried. This man, just before I was ready to write him off, looked into the crowd and he said, I don't care if your daddy hit you every day of your life. I don't care if your mama gave you up. Jesus died so that you would know you were loved and there's nothing you can do to earn it. Invitation time came, every head bowed, every eye closed. He said, how many of you want to be loved? My hand shot up like it was just a reflex. And I tried to pull it down so no one could see it. They had the invitation time, things kept moving. All the people are going forward to respond, but... I'm clenching the pew in front of me going, uh, no. This is my first time here. That's got to be a rule. (laughs) Sure enough, when he just couldn't take it anymore, that preacher moved from one side of the stage all the way to my stage, my side. He points out and he goes, son, it's you that we've been waiting on. I don't know why you're fighting it. Come on down. I have a thousand sets of eyes on me. In a room I've never walked into, Jason, my shortstop, looks at me and goes, hey, is he talking to you? I was like, dude, please say he is talking to you. (laughs) Because I saw that hand come on down. So I come down, and uh, everyone else got counseled right there in the room in the front. Me? I don't know what happened. I was a special case. I got back roomed. I came down, and the associate pastor came on the stage, grabbed me, and took me to the back. And so I was the only one that night that had that scenario. I got back there, and he shared with me how the, the gospel, shared, walked me through the Romans, how, what Jesus had done for me. And he said, are you ready to pray to receive Jesus? I said, that sounds great. He said, let me read one more verse. He said, Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. I said, no. He goes, why? What's wrong? I said, I'm not going to hold you accountable for this because you have no idea how bad what you just said hurt me, but you need to know what you said just hurt me. He said, why? I said, because my mother and my father... The people who held me, brought me into the world, were supposed to love me more than anyone else on the planet, nearly took my life and both walked out and neither in my life today. 
Don't ask me to believe in a God that I can't see, hear, touch, or smell is going to not break promises to me and will not walk out. I don't buy it. But because I was lost, I may have given that monologue with a little bit of expletive as well. And because I had just cussed at a minister, I felt kind of bad. So I stayed in the room and I didn't just storm out. He said, I want you to read that verse for yourself in black and white. I did. He said, I want you to read it again. Say it out loud. I did, but at that point I screamed at him. I said, you have no idea how bad you're hurting me. Stop it. He goes, I just want you to read it one last time and I want you to look at me. So I did. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I looked that man in the eyes and I learned later in ministry that Matthew 6 says, the eyes are the window to the soul. Because when I looked at that man and he repeated those words to me, I wasn't seeing him anymore. Jesus was telling me, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never break a promise to you. Everyone else has, but I will not. The same thing that led me to that back room was the same thing that led 16 years of hatred to pour out of me. And that night I gave my life to Christ. It changed me. And I say all that to say, what James is writing here in chapter 5, the first 12 verses, he's going to address two groups. He's going to address two groups, and and he's going to give a really big challenge and warning to everyone in the first six. These people were having a tendency to define themselves by their broken circumstances. They were having a tendency to define themselves by the temporal world that they were living in and all its lies. They were finding all their value and worth in their temporal wealth. And he gives a challenge that we all need to listen to. You see, this letter was circulating within the first 30 years of Jesus resurrecting. James will die. He will die by being cast off the very portico that that Jesus stood there with the enemy during his temptation. He said, I'll give you all of this. The half-brother of Jesus will be thrown off there and his life gone. And before he does, he writes this letter. It's so emphatic. It's so important. It's circulating through the church. We need to be able to listen and embrace it. And so he says this, Come now, you rich. Before you discount that statement, I need everyone here to realize we fall into this category. We are one of the richest countries in the industrialized world. We hold almost 90% of the world's resources. He's talking to us, and this letter should haunt us. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. You need to change. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness or evidence against you that will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they cry out against you. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and in luxury. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. What is he saying? He's saying this. If you're going to continue to find yourself by the temporal wealth of this world, you're going to hoard That's what you're going to do. You're going to accumulate as much as you possibly can and do everything you can to keep it for yourself. 
And when you do, let me give you the definition of hoarding. It is the amassing of large quantities of non-essential items that you have an inability to let go of. Anybody here ever see the show Hoarders? I remember an episode that I watched where this old woman was just infatuated with old magazines and she had amassed so many that they had, she'd been relegated to her own room where she slept on magazines, but every other square inch of her house was covered with magazines. She was having her, her life robbed from her. Here he says that you are amassing quantities. You're hoarding not only perishable items like food. When it says that it, corro- uh, it, cor- it corrupted or it rotted, maybe your text says that. What he's talking about is perishable food. They believed that they were going to store up as much as they possibly could for a rainy day, but the tendency was it would rot before that rainy day ever come. And they could have just been sharing that with those who otherwise didn't have. But in the end, it was of no benefit to anyone. He said, look, your clothes are moth-eaten. He's simply stating what Jesus did in Matthew 6. Do not store up treasures here on earth where where moth and rust destroy, but rather store treasures in heaven. He says, look, there were family heirlooms being passed down by generation, and there was only maybe once, twice in someone's life that they would go to an event that was that special, they would break that heirloom out. So otherwise, it literally just hangs in their closet as moth food. Anyone have any idea what I'm talking about? It's of no use to anyone. Matthew 6, Jesus also said, Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Well, James hits that. He says this, That your gold and silver will rust, and their corrosion will be witness or evidence against you. It will literally eat your flesh like fire. What he's saying is this, if you are going to put all your stock in all your precious metals, that will eventually come to nothing. They'll eventually rust as well. It's only exposing how impure your heart actually is. It only exposes that which you have rotted with inside, you've corroded as well. And it's going to, in the end, when the judge comes to you, it's going to be your evidence to him that will send you in separation from him for all time. It's going to separate you from him. You see... When you hoard, he says, you'll do anything to keep it. In fact, they were, they were so perverse that these rich, not only did they have all the resources that they could have been sharing with the poor, and by the way, this letter is circulated to the church, so it's not just the poor, it's poor brothers that they're supposed to be in community with. He says, These day workers, they go into the marketplace and they get hired by you and and they have earned their wage at the end of the day. They'll go into your fields and they'll break their backs for you. But by the end of the day, when it comes payment time, there's nothing for them. You leave them empty-handed. You're literally stealing from them. You're robbing from them. This This was a direct command that was being broken in the law. Deuteronomy 24, Leviticus 19 said, You never let the sun go down without paying a day worker his wage and his worth. So now these converted Jews at the church of Jerusalem, they're not even Jewish anymore. He's saying, you are so worldly, that's your only definition. You're not Christian, you're not Jewish, you're just worldly. 
You're literally stealing from your brother. And when the poor would have the notion to rise up against, you know, this injustice after a week of no food and not being able to pay their, to feed their family, because that day wage went to feed the family the next day. Whenever they got the nerve and said, I need to seek justice, I'm going to seek the courts. The rich were friends with the rich. And that judge and jury had already been paid off by that rich landover. So when that poor came in to make accusation, all they would find was sentencings to imprisonment, banishment, or yes, even death. It says, they cry out against you, the righteous, even to the point of killing. Now in John 10, Jesus likened the thief or Satan. He said, he comes like a thief to still kill and destroy from you. Now let me ask you this. He, James, as a big prophetic proclamation, sends this letter. He ends his entire book with this first statement. He says, hey, you steal, kill, and destroy. You're supposed to wear the name of Jesus. You're supposed to be gathering under that banner. You're supposed to be known as Christian. Who do you look more like, Jesus or the enemy? And this is a shot to everyone here who might be an employer. This is a shot to everyone in this room who might think themselves not rich. He gives us an ability to contemplate. Are we entrusted with his resources or are we letting those resources define us to the point where we'll hoard, steal, and kill? Your first point, and here it is. If you're defining yourself by the temporal wealth of this world and its lies, you're having your life robbed from you. We can continue to do that or, or second point, and I want to unpack this one really quickly. The second point, your final point, here it is. Or are we defining ourselves by the eternal work of Jesus and the truth? Let me give you seven, the next six verses, and he, he speaks to the poor who are being robbed by their rich brothers. Here's what he says. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See, your farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take consideration the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord to you as an example of their suffering and their patience. He says, indeed, consider the blessedness of Job and his steadfastness and perseverance, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or an oath. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. What he's saying in that last verse is this, be as advertised. If you are a believer in Jesus, just be as advertised. Be of honesty and integrity. Be who the world expects you to be. You see, these people had seen Jesus. 30 years within his resurrection, the man writing the letter knew what Jesus smelled like. He was raised in his home. He's saying, I'm an eyewitness of Jesus, his ministry. I didn't even buy into it till Acts. But I want you to know, don't make the same mistake I did. If you're going to follow, follow. And define yourself by the eternal work of Jesus and the truth, not the lies that this world offers us. Your wealth will never determine your worth. It doesn't make your status. So what does he say to our poor brothers? He says, says, endure. Now, I'm going to give you three really quick 
ways that I want to practically say what James is having us unpack here. Point number one is this. How do we define ourselves by the eternal work of Jesus? One, we have to submit to the Spirit. You see, in Galatians 5, we, if I asked all the, those in children's over here, they would try to recite to you the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, gentleness, self-control, right? And if you were to list those, they might seem daunting. If we looked at those and said, hey, I have to do all these things, it might seem overwhelming. But there was only one command in that entire chapter, and that was this. Paul said, submit to the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and these things will naturally come from your life. Stop fighting it. For you to endure, for you to be patient, for you to be long-suffering is unnatural. You must walk by the Spirit, and these things will come forth from you. Second, how many of you have some spiritual people that you look up to in your life? They may have a little more gray hair than you. Maybe they have no hair. A little older. How many of you have those people? That's my second point. Seek and submit to the wisdom of an elder or a mentor. Hey, how many of you, you know someone who is exactly today where you one day want to be? They, they possess in their, in their person a roadmap of success that can help you if you'll just receive their counsel. If you don't trust me, look, go back to 1 Kings 12, look at Rehoboam, look what he did. The son of Solomon, who had a really big decision on his hands, he could have listened to the wisdom of the elders who, who also served his father, or or they could, he could have listened to the counsel of his peers and everyone in the same trench as him who had everything to lose like he did. There are people in your life who've been through the fire that you're going through and they know how to help you navigate that unto success. They can help you by their own losses to walk around those landmines that are going to blow you up. And here's the thing. Let me just say it clearly. We need to stop seeking solely advice of those people who are as dumb as we are. Amen? They're right where we are. They have no ability to help us go somewhere that they themselves have never been. Seek and submit to an elder. He's saying, consider the faith and the perseverance, the steadfastness of Job and the prophets, those who first taught you the word. Hebrews 13, 5. Consider those who taught you the word and imitate their faith. Last point. You need to give yourself some grace. Change takes time. If I looked at you and I said, hey, I'm going to be a doctor or a lawyer, you might immediately in your mind put me into a category that says, this dude's going to school for a long time. He's going to read a lot. He's going to study. He's going to be invested financially and all his time is going to be gone. Eventually, he's going to have to go through internships, residencies, and pass a bar just so he can either practice medicine or law. You would understand if I said, doctor, that it's going to take a lot of time. But if I look at you and I say, I'm called to be like Jesus. Well, then we just attend a good church once a week for an hour and we pray over our meals every once in a while and occasionally open the Bible and that's going to work. Hello? Do you hear me? We're going to be like the one who created all the doctors and the lawyers. We're going, to be the, we're going to make our lives as disciples the one who looks at the world and he goes, I created everything here in my image. 
King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lord of Sabaoth, the one who is commander in chief and all the armies of heaven line up behind him. We're going to be like him and we believe that we can skate through on the minimal but expect a maximum return. It's going to take some self-effort. As much as we submit to the Spirit, let Him have His way, there's some disciplines that we as believers must continue to exercise and get back to. If it's going to take a lot of time to change and become a doctor, then it's going to take a whole lot more to become like Jesus. If you are continuing to define yourself by the temporal wealth of this world, I want to say with you, just like I was, listen, I was defining myself by the brokenness of the world. You are living a lie. Let me tell you the best part of my testimony. I shared with you some of my story. The best part is what happened after that night. Within three years of me coming to Christ, so did every single person in my immediate and very broken family. My father, my mother, my brother, my sister. Let me, let me paint that picture for you more. God called me to ministry the night before I played that game as a sophomore for that championship. I didn't know what that meant, but he called me to preach. I came home from that trip. I called my mother and said, hey, I'm a believer. God's called me to minister. I'm called to preach. I need to seek out dad, and I need to seek out you. I need your forgiveness. Now, because I said I'm going to be seeking out my dad, my mom looked at me and said, why would you bring this on us? You'll never preach. Good thing I was more submitted to Jesus at that point than I was what my mom or dad thought. So, wouldn't you just know it, that a couple years in, God would let me preach one of my very first sermons in a church from a stage where my mom could be present. I preached that night And the second person to walk that aisle was my mother. The first was the head of the deacons. And she said to me, as she held my face, looked into my eyes, she said, forgive me, you were made to do this. You were made to preach. She went on as uh, an administrator in Central Florida. She just retired this last year. But the rest of her work in a public school in Central Florida consisted of her leading a Bible study with her staff on Tuesday mornings where she would invite me in to share with her staff and I led many of her teachers and staff to Jesus. She joined her church and became a one, like number one volunteer and prayer coordinator for her church. She just retired and left Florida to move here to join me in the work of the ministry here in Nashville. Let me tell you what. We don't define ourselves any longer by the temporal brokenness of this world. We define ourselves and we've been restored by the eternal work of Jesus in the truth. If you are continuing to define yourself by the temporal ways, the temporal wealth, and the brokenness of this world, you are living a lie and today that can change. I promise you it changed everything in my broken, never thought it could ever happen world. 